If you have your Bible with you, would you please go ahead and open up to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. And if you're new to the Bible, a couple of quick shortcuts that might help you out. Feel free to use your table of contents at the front of the Bible to find 1 John. Uh, Or if you go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and start flipping pages to your left, uh, at the, you'll get to the first of Revelation, and then you'll hit the tiny book of Jude, then tiny book of Third John and Second John, and then you'll land in First John. And so I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open or keep your app easily accessible if that's how you're rolling today. And uh, we're in First John chapter two, verses one through six. We're going to spend our time today talking about a situation that so many Christians face, and it's a very, very serious problem. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the issue of spiritual doubt. Spiritual doubt can be a crippling condition. It's the condition in which a Christian doesn't know if they're really a Christian. We might think that we're a fraud. We, We might not know for sure that we have eternal life. We might wonder what God's posture towards us is. Does He really love me? Is He really saving me? Maybe I've been lying to myself all this time. It's terribly common in the Christian life. It is always painful, and it is not the way God's people are meant to live. I wonder about you. Have you ever dealt with spiritual doubt in your own relationship with Jesus Christ? And it could be that you're facing this situation even right now. Well, the Apostle John once led a church that was going through the same thing. They were experiencing an epidemic of doubt. And it came from crisis within the church family. We haven't talked a lot so far in our study of 1 John about the exact context of this church and the letter that John writes. They're living in the aftermath of a massive schism. There's been a split. And a group of people have left this church and gone on their way. And those people that have left are not going to start a new church that's going to preach the gospel they're leaving because they are abandoning the gospel. They're leaving behind John's message about Jesus Christ, and they're going to do something entirely different. And that split, I believe, had very serious emotional and spiritual ramifications in those who remained, those who stayed with John and the church. Uh, If you've ever been a part of church conflict or a church split like that, It's really painful because it's not just conflict over ideology. At the heart of it, there's relationships. And so when this group left the mother church, gone were relationships. And people who had been trusted and they'd spent time with were gone. And now it leaves those behind under John's care wondering, what if those people were right? What if John's message is not trustworthy? What if Jesus isn't essential for my forgiveness or for my cleansing or for me to know God. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. And so here's this doubt that has settled in on the people in John's church. And as he begins to work his way through his letter, he tells them, I I want you to know. I want you to know that you know him. I want you to have confidence in your salvation in Jesus Christ. So in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, John speaks assurance to his readers. But he doesn't just pat them on the head and say, hey, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But rather, he gives them a litmus test of sorts to help them with their assurance in Jesus Christ. 
And that's my goal today. My goal is to give you confidence in what Christ has done for you. I want to eradicate the spiritual doubt you carry and replace it with joyful confidence in Jesus Christ. And to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you John's test in the form of two questions. Two questions you can use to eliminate doubts about your salvation and to walk in confidence in Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know Him, if we keep His commands. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and yet doesn't keep His commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly in Him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in Him. The one who says He remains in Him should walk just as He walked. So when spiritual doubt invades our soul. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and ask yourself two questions, two questions to help you find assurance in your walk with Jesus Christ. The first question is this, am I trusting in Jesus? Doubts come, questions rise, fears get implanted. I'm going to come here to John, 1 John 2, and I'm going to ask myself this question, am I trusting in Jesus? We have several key words and phrases in, in this passage that require our attention. Let's start with the very first phrase. John addresses his readers as my little children. And this shows us his intense affection, his deep affection for the people he ministers to. He cares for them like a spiritual father. And he's never far away from these kinds of words of affection. Nine different times in this letter alone, he refers to them as children. And he speaks over and over about the fact that they are children of God. They're not John's children. They're God's children. And so they're not dummies. They're not morons. They are children whom John cares for and ultimately children of God. So it matters what name we're called. There is a tempter who wants you to believe that you are not loved by your heavenly Father, and he will often whisper accusatory names in your brain. What names does he try to get you to believe about yourself? Failure, loser, awful, embarrassment, worthless, mistake. Names like those stick with us. We remember those names, and they come back to the surface so easily in moments of doubt and fear. It's hard to forget those names. I was called a name once that I remember very vividly. Several years ago, uh, our daughter Emma was two years old, and we had gone to dinner at some friend's house. And after dinner, Emma was the only kid there. She had a toy microphone, and she decided to put on a concert for us. So she sang. It was spectacular. It was incredible, amazing. Uh, and then it started to get a little late. And so I said to her, Emma, we need to put the microphone down because it's time to go home. And she put the microphone to her mouth, and she said, Why don't you shut up, you crazy mountain stupid head? My child called me 
a crazy mountain stupid head. So we stayed another hour, and then I just tried to make sense of this. What is this name this child has called me? We, we remember these names. They stick with us. And the, the hurtful names are the ones that stick the most, unfortunately. What God calls you matters. And He calls you His child. If, if we're just plowing through the book of 1 John, it's just a throwaway phrase. But you might need to sit in that for a while and just consider the affection and the love in the delight the Father has in you, his little child. He says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so you may not sin. What are the these things John's writing? Well, that, that points back to the things we've already read and studied in chapter 1. He's also pointing ahead to the things that are about to come, the things that he's going to write about in this section and beyond. John's really concerned, just like we talked about last week, that children of God would sin less and less and walk in holiness, walk in the light of God. And so John is trying to achieve this goal of helping us sin less, but what happens when we do sin? Well, look at what he says in verse 1. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So if we sin, when we sin, we have Jesus Christ as our advocate before the Father, and we have Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's very important that we understand both of these concepts, Jesus as our advocate and Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. So first of all, John says Jesus is our advocate with the Father. The term advocate means that Jesus speaks in our defense. When we sin, He speaks on our behalf in the presence of the Father. And what kind of advocate is He? John tells us He's a righteous advocate. Jesus, the righteous one, speaks on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. But Jesus is much more than just an advocate. Verse 2 tells us that He's also the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Big, beefy, important words that we need to simplify. I hope to save you a lot of reading and give you a very simple, straightforward way of understanding this phrase, atoning sacrifice. So the word atoning is a reference to the cleansing and forgiveness that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. The word sacrifice is a reference to the way in which God's wrath is turned away from us. And instead of us bearing His wrath, it goes to the sacrificial lamb. It goes to Christ on the cross. So, atonement. Jesus atones for our sins, meaning He reconciles us to God, removes our sin, cleanses us, and forgives us. We read this very idea last week in chapter 1. In verse 7, we're told that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In verse 9, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's atonement at work. For sure, atonement is a deep, theologically rich word. It has all kinds of nuances and facets. For the sake of our understanding and simplicity, it speaks to us, to, to, speaks to us today about the cleansing and forgiveness we have in Christ. To call Jesus our sacrifice means that by dying, He took the punishment that our sins deserve. By His death, He took our sin and He gives us His righteousness. And what that means is that God possesses no more wrath for us. 
All of His wrath on sin is poured out at the cross. Jesus drinks every last drop of it so that we don't have to take any of it. Now, oftentimes we, we have this view of God the Father as the angry, punishing grandfather in the sky. But Jesus is our kind and compassionate go-between, and He's appeasing the angry Father, convincing Him to love us and to do good to us. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches us about God. Now, does God have wrath for sin? Absolutely He does. But just a little bit later in this very letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we're told that God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. He doesn't say God hated us and sent His Son. God loved us and sent His Son. God's fundamental posture towards you is love. He loves you. And you're a sinner and you're a rebel and you're broken and you're all kinds of a hot mess and God loves you and sent His Son. The cross of Jesus Christ is the surest sign of God's love for you. You might look inward and say, there's nothing in me that's lovable. God says, too late, I already sent my son. This is the evidence. I know every bit of your brokenness, and I love you, and I sent the son to die for you in your place. Verse 2 has another statement in it that deserves our attention. It says that Jesus died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what are we to make of that phrase that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? Um, This verse is often pointed to by people who want to argue what's called universalism, meaning that everyone is ultimately saved whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the only way you can argue that from this verse is if the rest of the book of 1 John didn't exist. And if, in fact, the rest of the Bible didn't exist. If all we had was just that line on a wall somewhere, then we would draw some of those conclusions. But that's not what we have. Just a little bit later in this very letter, in chapter 3, John's going to speak of two different groups of people, those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. So, John does not believe, nor does he teach universalism. So, what does he mean here by this phrase that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? Well, I I take John here to be saying that Christ's salvation crosses every border so that no one's race or nationality or any other trait will keep them from receiving the full benefit of Christ's sacrifice if and when they come to faith. This is a global gospel to go to the whole world. So, Jesus is our advocate and He is our atoning sacrifice. What do you think Christ's defense of you sounds like when He defends you to the Father? What kind of words, what kind of argument do you think He uses to defend you when you sin? Maybe He says, no, Father, don't condemn Him because He really has potential. Or or maybe he says, no, Father, don't condemn her. Look, she's done 34 good things in the last three months. Or or maybe he says, no, Father, don't condemn him. He's not as bad as a terrorist. Or he says, no, Father, don't condemn her. She meant well. She's had good intentions this whole time. Maybe he says, you see this one? Hmm, Go ahead, punt him. Done with him. No hope for this guy. 
You think those are the kinds of things Jesus says? You, th- you think He pleads your case, defends your sin by pointing to all of this random stuff? Not at all. Here's how Jesus defends you to the Father. He pleads His blood. It's as if He says, Father, You love this child and sent Me to die for their sins. I love this child and I died for them. Forgive them their unrighteousness on the basis of My righteousness. And what is better than that? Are you trusting in Jesus who is your advocate and your atoning sacrifice? His defense for you never fails. It never ceases. It is always in full. It is completely effective. If we sin, we have an advocate and an atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So when doubts assail you, when fear wells up, when the accuser is in your ear telling you, who could love you? How could you be God's? How could you be forgiven? You remember, I have an advocate, my atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now look, sometimes we get in that place of doubt because we've committed grievous sin. Do not hear me this morning saying sin doesn't matter, not a big deal, sin it up, you're good with God. That's not the point here. The reality is sometimes we're fully aware of the mistakes we've made and the people we've hurt in the process. And so we think to ourselves, man, I've really, man, I've, I've messed this up big time. I've hurt people I care about. I've made horrible choices. Maybe I'm not saved. But even in that situation, when you walk hand in hand with Peter, the denier of Christ, do you think the blood of Christ is less than your sin against God? Do you think his defense would falter because of the gravity of your sin? Do you think his atoning sacrifice for you would not be sufficient because you messed up so big? The cross of Christ is not small, and his forgiveness is not a little thing. It is grand and incredible and beautiful, and it welcomes everyone that comes to him in faith. And so, friend, maybe you've royally messed up. But you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, your atoning sacrifice, the righteous one who loves you and pleads his blood on your behalf. When those doubts come to my heart, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask myself, am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Am I letting him plead my case by his blood? And then I'm going to see those doubts go away. There's a second question you might want to ask as you wrestle with doubts about your salvation. The second question is this, am I keeping Jesus' commands? Am I trusting Jesus is the first one? The second question that sort of summarizes this litmus test, am I keeping Jesus' commands? So in verses 3 through 6, John turns to the matter of knowing God, and he uses this phrase, knowing God, in verses Uh, in verse 3, and then also at the end of verse 5. So in verse 3, he writes, this is how we know God. Verse 5, he writes, this is how we know we are in Him, essentially the same thing. So the phrase to know God 
means to be in a covenant relationship with Him. It, it means to have eternal life, to be saved, whatever sort of churchy phrase you want to use. And the reason Paul, excuse me, the reason John uses this language is because Jesus used this very same language. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus is praying, and here's what He says in 17.3. He says, now this is eternal life that they know you. So knowing God is equated to eternal life by Jesus, that they know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So we can be sure that we have eternal life if we keep Christ's commands. Does that thought increase your anxiety in you? If it doesn't, verse 4 is going to peg it out. Look at what verse 4 says. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep His commands as a liar, and the truth is not in Him. And so this is where our spiritual anxiety goes to DEFCON 1, alarm bells go off, uh, all we can think of is every sin we've committed. We know we're guilty of sin. We know we haven't kept His commands perfectly. And so does that make us a liar without God in us? It's amazing how one verse of Scripture ripped out of context can do so much damage to our assurance in Jesus Christ. Well, here's the key question that will help quiet your anxiety. What does John mean by the commands of Jesus? What are the commands that we need to keep? John doesn't keep us guessing. He tells us specifically what these commands are in chapter 3, verse 23. You're going to see it on the screen, and then I, I want you to see it with your eyes, get it in your heart, go to it in your Bible, underline it, highlight it, put stars around it, draw arrows to it, make copies of it, and then tape it to your bathroom mirror and your refrigerator and the steering wheel of your car because you've got to get this in you. What are the commands of Christ we must keep by which we would know that we know Him? 1 John 3, 23, now this is His command, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He commanded us. So what are the commands? Believe in Jesus Christ, love as He commanded us. Am I keeping the commands of Christ? Am I believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior? Am I loving the way He has commanded me to love others? This silences the accusing voice inside. Listen again to what chapter 2, verse 4 says. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So if someone says they know God, someone says, I have eternal life, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation and they aren't loving as Jesus commanded us to love, John's right. That person is a liar. They are lying to themselves, lying to the world. They do not know God. They do not have eternal life. What John is not saying here is that if you're a Christian and you sin, then you're drop-kicked out of the kingdom of God. Don't forget verse 1 and 2. If we sin, we have an advocate. We have an atoning sacrifice. Christian, you sin every day, and you're going to continue to sin. We're not okay with that. Part of our discipleship is trying to walk as He walked, that we would distance ourselves from sin, and we would walk more and more in holiness. But on this side of eternity, we're going to sin. And when we do, we have an advocate who is our atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ. 
And so what John's describing here in verses 3 through 6 is not sinless perfection. As is, you have to be totally perfect in order to hold on to your salvation. Saved by grace, secured by works. That's not what John's teaching. What he's telling us is baseline Christianity is belief in Jesus Christ and loving as Jesus loved. That's baseline. It's not extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary in comparison to the world. It's not extra, it's, this is not like level 12 Christianity. It is what it is to be a Christian, period, bullseye material, to believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and then to love as He loved. Now, if you wanted to push back on that a little bit, here's, here's the question you might ask. You would say, okay, um, John tells us to believe in Jesus and to love as he loved. Isn't that adding something to the gospel? Shouldn't we just believe and that's enough? Well, you're right that trust in Christ is totally, completely sufficient. The the gospel is not believe and do these things, but that's not what John is advocating for. He's not telling us to believe and add things to the gospel. What he's telling us is that the sure evidence that our belief in Christ is is right, that our conversion is true, is that we will have a heart like Jesus has. It's impossible to come into contact with the God of creation and walk away unchanged. To say, I believe, and then to live like the devil. That's not salvation. And so, when, when we are truly converted, there's evidence, there's signs. Our lives are transformed, and we love different. We love in a way that Christ has loved us. We experience change from the inside out. We're able to love like Christ because when we believe in Him, we experience a change of mind. So we begin to think about people the way Jesus thinks about them. We experience a change of perspective so that we see people the way Jesus sees them. We experience a change of affection so that we feel about people the way Jesus feels about them. We experience a change of will so that we want for people what Jesus wants for them. So when John tells us to keep Christ's commands by believing in Him and by loving others, he's just describing what it is to be a Christian, to walk with Christ, to know Him, and to love Him. Now, the two commands that John has identified, the command to believe in Jesus and to love like Jesus, are traits that make Christians distinct from the rest of the world. The world at large does not believe in Jesus not in a salvation sense. There are many people who believe in a God. Many people are spiritual. Many people know of Jesus, but the world at large does not believe in Jesus to be their advocate and their atoning sacrifice. You're different. And also, the world at large does not love as Jesus loved. Did you know that there are many people in the church whose love is being corrupted because they are beginning to love the way the world loves. It's happening. That kind of love is self-centered, not self-sacrificing. That kind of love is prideful, not humble. That kind of love shouts and points fingers. It doesn't kneel and wash feet. You won't learn the love of Jesus by watching the world. You learn it only through time spent listening to His voice and studying His life and serving people who are hurting so that you can walk as He walked. And when you live that way, verse 5 tells us that God's love is made complete in you. 
I think it's really appropriate that today, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and the, the day before MLK Day, that we would talk about loving the way Jesus loved. Christ's love compels us to see the God-given dignity in every human life. Every life is precious to Jesus Christ. And we take that to mean lives in the womb, and lives with wombs, and lives that are in poverty, lives that are victimized, lives that are parentless, lives that are incarcerated, lives that are on death row, lives that suffer injustice of any kind. We obey the command to love as Jesus loved because that's the way we've been loved. No politician can set that agenda. The gospel drives our feet. The gospel drives our affections. And love covers a multitude of sins. So when we ask this question of ourselves, am I keeping his commands? What we're asking is do I believe in Jesus and do I love like Jesus? Those two go hand in hand. You won't have one without the other. And together, they give you assurance that you are truly a child of God. So spiritual doubt can be a debilitating feeling. The fear and the anxiety that comes with it can leave us truly battered and fearful. But John gives us these two questions that will replace our fear with assurance. Am I trusting Jesus? Am I keeping his commands? When those doubts well up, I'm going to sit down with this word open, read these words again, and ask myself, am I trusting Jesus? I am. Am I keeping his commands? I'm believing. I'm striving to love as he loves. Yes, I'm doing those things. Now, I believe that John's purpose in, in this part of his letter is to speak this kind of assurance to his Christian flock. It's important, again, that we keep the context of the situation in mind, that here we are in the aftermath of a split. And so when John speaks in verse 4 of those who say they have eternal life, but they don't believe in Jesus or love like Jesus, I think he's speaking primarily about the people who have left, the people who have abandoned the gospel. He's speaking assurance to his people, not fearful condemnation. He's speaking assurance to them. Those who have left Christ are, are those who have abandoned forgiveness, cleansing the defense that he would otherwise have for them. And so, Christian, you're not meant to live in perpetual doubt. In this way, Christianity is fundamentally different from every other world religion. Every other religion teaches that you will learn your verdict at your judgment, but the Bible teaches us that we know God's verdict because of Christ's judgment. Jesus is your advocate and your atoning sacrifice. You are a child of God. You are forgiven. You are cleansed from your sin. You're set free to walk as Christ walked and to love as Christ loved. And so I think maybe this passage hits on four different groups of people, two types of believers, two types of non-believers. This is very generalized, but I wonder if you might find yourself in one of these four categories. The two different types of believers that might uh, encounter this passage, one would be the believer who truly trusts Christ, truly has eternal life, and doubt about your salvation is not a, a concern that you carry. Maybe at different times in your walk with Christ, you've dealt with it, but it's been dealt with, and you walk in the assurance of Christ. And so when you read this, it produces in you joy and gladness and humble praise of God because you're reminded again, Christ is your advocate and your atoning sacrifice. The other kind of believer might be the believer who carries doubts, 
and fears for any number of reasons. It might just be an internal condition that leaves you doubting often. It might be sin in your life that leaves you thinking, I don't know that God can really love me or that I'm really forgiven. And in that case, this passage is a call to you to rest in Jesus Christ who pleads his blood on your behalf, who is your atoning sacrifice, cleansing you from all sin once and for all. And so it's not to sweep sin under the rug and say this doesn't mean anything. Remember chapter 1, confess your sin, find forgiveness, find the light of Christ there again, and rest in the assurance that is yours because of the finished work of Christ at the cross. There's two types of non-Christians that might encounter this passage also. One would be the person who thought they were a believer, but in fact they're a lot like verse 4. They've said, I have eternal life, but maybe you didn't know that you had to believe in Jesus Christ for that eternal life to be yours. Maybe you didn't know you, you would then love as Christ commanded in order to show evidence, fruit, that you truly were His. Maybe that's what this passage has done this morning, is really just laid bare the reality that though you are religious, though you are spiritual, though you mean well, you're not a child of God. And in that case, this passage is not a hammer to crush you. It is an invitation from the God who loves you and sent His Son to die for you, for you to come and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The other type of non-Christian this might speak to is the person who knows you're not a believer. And you didn't know you had to believe in Christ to be saved. You didn't know you were going to love the way Christ loved. You didn't, you didn't know any of that. You didn't know it was even possible to be right with God and have assurance and confidence before Him. And again, here's this invitation to you, scales coming off your eyes as God awakens you to faith in Jesus Christ. To say you can know, you can have your sins forgiven, your guilt cleansed once and for all, and you're loved by God, and you're His child whenever you trust in Jesus Christ. And so how do you do that? How do you give your life to Christ? You, you do it through a change of heart and perhaps through the vehicle of a simple prayer. You might pray a prayer to Christ and tell Him that you're going to trust in Him and not in yourself anymore. There's not an official prayer, like I don't have official words to give you and, you, and this is the prayer that saves because the words are right. Salvation's not a magic formula or a magic trick. God knows your heart. But you might pray a simple prayer like this, Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner and my sin separates me from you. I know you died for my sin on the cross and you rose again from the grave. And, and Jesus, I'm going to trust in you, only you, to save me from my sin. I'm giving you my life. Thank you for forgiving me. And use me to bring glory to your name. Just a simple prayer like that. Because God knows your heart. And when he calls you, it's effective. And you belong to him once and for all. You become his child. So this could be the day that new life is yours, eternal life is yours. The advocate and atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, pleads your case once and for all before the Father. So I've got two questions for you. Are you trusting Jesus? Are you obeying Jesus? The world may struggle to recognize you with your mask on, but they'll know you by your walk. They'll know that you're a child of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this kind of salvation. And as we bring this 
And it's time to close. I lift up to you my brothers and sisters who are plagued by doubt and fear this morning. Lord, you, you have confidence for us, assurance for us. God, I pray that they would believe what you say in your word. Even though they may not feel saved, though their emotions may be vacillating one way or the other, though there may be fear, though they may have reason, conviction over sin that makes them fear, God, I pray that they would know for sure they're yours because they trust in Jesus Christ who is their advocate and atoning sacrifice. God, I pray for my, my brother and sister in here for whom sin has just been wreaking havoc in their lives that maybe shame has kept them from confronting it, confessing it, repenting from it. God, I pray that the promise of joy and the promise of a defense and the promise of times of refreshing would lead them past the shame that the enemy would keep them in. And Lord, that they would come to you for forgiveness again. God, I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their savior that this would be the day that eternal life would be theirs by their faith in Jesus Christ. God, open the eyes of faith in them that they would believe and be saved and walk out of this building today with eternal assurance in Jesus Christ, their advocate. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.